from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents interviews of people who have been influenced by the Baha'i Faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22UNITE. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Deb Rogers, a Baha'i who grew up in a little town called Camp Hill, Alabama during the segregated 60s. She was despised by both the white and black members of her community because of the lightness of the color of her skin, so she turned to books. However, her mother would beat her when she found out she was reading. When she turned 18, she went off to college to be as far away as possible. She majored in English and became an accomplished journalist. I started the interview by asking Deb to describe her upbringing. Grew up in a little town called Camp Hill, Alabama, population probably under a thousand. What it was like is a huge question. Mm-hmm. So, what was what kind of town was it? It's a very small town. Black folk live on one side of the other tracks, and white folks live on the other. Literally, there was a railroad track that went through the town. Mm-hmm. Among black folk, most were farmers. Few of them had an education, high school education. Some were factory workers. All the businesses in town were owned and operated by the white folks from the other side of the track. Mm-hmm. That town is still very much like that today. Really? It's just a segregated? Mm-hmm. Still segregated, yes. Mm-hmm. What was your childhood like? In this town... I was not, this, this was, was in the early 60s, I was born in 1961. I remember when I was still a very, very small child, my mother, who was a rather fierce individual, was walking uptown one day, and she pushed me into the muddy ditch because a white female was approaching us, and black people were not allowed to walk on the sidewalk with white. I didn't know this. And when she told me to get off the, get in the ditch, I assumed I hadn't heard right, which, and, and the woman's getting closer, and that made it necessary for her to push me into the ditch. How old were yeah. you? I would say I was about six or seven years old. Mm, so that was your introduction to this racial situation. That, but also because my mother was fairly fair skin, fair, lighter complexion. Mm-hmm. And I inherited that from her, so I was not accepted by most of the black people in town either. It sounds really bad, and at the time it was it was really difficult because I was not accepted by anyone. Even members of my own family hated me because they said I was too white. And, of course, white people hated me because I was black. But I think I see a salvation in that today. Because as I've tried to teach the faith to other family members and other people in my hometown, they are so ingrained in that environment. Mm -hmm. They are so attached to 
the church, for instance, mm-hmm. and to family and to friends, that they can't step beyond that to consider something new and wonderful like Baha'u'llah. One friend, miserable in the church that he belongs to, and I taught him faith, and he saw how I transformed. He saw how happy it made me. Yeah. And he was so miserable, and I tried to offer Baha'u'llah's message to this friend, mm-hmm. and this friend said, Methodist born, Methodist bred, Methodist until I'm graveyard dead. So even though I'm miserable, this is all I've known, this is all I am, this is all I ever will be. Yeah. So if I'd had a- acceptance, then perhaps I'd have the same kind of mindset, you know? Mm-hmm. How did the cruelty manifest itself in the black community? I was made fun of constantly. Other kids would not play with me. I was bullied by everywhere I went, practically. Do you know what ash is, for instance? Mm-mm. It's dry skin. And on a black person, they, it's called ash because it starts to look white. You know, you can, you can be ashy yourself, but no one would notice, right? Because mm-hmm. you're not going to get any whiter. But a black person with ashy skin starts looking white. And whenever I became that way, then the other kids would say, see, that's the white coming out in you. I told you you were white, you know. So I went through school up and up through even my senior year in school. I was still being bullied by the other kids. So did you live pretty much a solitary life because of this situation? I did. I retreated into books, Mm. which proved to be more evident to the people around me that I was too white. Mm -hmm. Again, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but there's a mindset that some people have that if you are educated, if you use correct grammar, if you get a job, a good job, that sort of thing, that then you're acting white. Mm -hmm. And so when I chose to read, which I don't know which came first, if it became an escape first or if the love came first, but I loved reading. Mm -hmm. But that alone was enough to set people off around me. I was beaten for it. You grew up probably as the civil rights movement was reaching its height. Did it reach the little town you lived in? In peculiar ways, because in most of the homes where I visited, we interacted with, these were not homes where the newspaper was read. These were not homes where people read books. Things filtered down through the television, and television... I mean, if you're getting all your information from one source, it better be a great source, and television is not always a great source. Mm -hmm. I remember an aunt sitting on the front porch with an older aunt who told me that she had to get up and go inside and take her bath because she had just heard on the news that the Black Panthers were coming, and she knew that Black Panthers killed black people, (laughs) and she wanted to be clean when she died. But that was the extent of her knowledge. Mm Mm-hmm. The civil rights movement never really got to your little town uh, before you left. There were no protests, if that's yeah. what you mean. I, or um, the situation didn't progressively improve before you left? No, not, not at all. Mm-hmm. I was telling my, my husband that to this day, because of the way I was, I was raised, I still have the mindset that there are certain places I can't go because I am black. 
or that I should not go because I am black and I am not allowed. I find myself stopping to ask the question. Yeah. You know, I left there when I was 18 and I've traveled all over the place and and I was always well-read and I was in a newspaper business, you know, so <laughs> mm-hmm. I know there's a different world, but... You said you left at 18? 17, actually. And where did you go? I graduated high school, and at that point I decided that I wanted to get as far away from home as possible. Although I had been awarded scholarships to a university that would have allowed me to live at home while I went to school, I had to get away. And there was this little school called Talladega College. I had never heard of it before, so I assumed it had to be very, very, very far away from my home. And I ended up going there. Turns out it was only two hours away. But growing up in a place where I grew up, it was like a million miles away. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Talladega is an all-black liberal arts school founded on the principles of W.B. Du Bois. And what did you study there? I was an English major. Again, my love of reading, my love of literature led me in that direction, and I had decided that I wanted to go into the newspaper business. The school did not have a major in journalism, but I felt that would be a good stepping stone. How was college life there? It was wonderful. Let me back up a moment. Sure. Uh, I went to elementary school and high school, all in one school primarily. And each year during Black History Week, as it was then, they will put on an assembly program where they would review speeches by Booker T. Washington, Mary McLeod Bethune, and two or three other people. And it was the same speeches over and over again every single time. And that was the extent, even though this town, the school was majority black and such, black history was not studied. Now, before we get into that, I'm a little curious. Did you start out with schools being segregated, and then at some point the schools were integrated before you graduated? Schools were segregated when I started out. They were integrated when I was in the seventh grade. And at that point, our area got its first, what they now call segregation academies. The white families in town, there were two schools in our whole town, one for the black kids, one for the white kids. When, in a, when they were forced to integrate, the white families got together and built a private academy for their kids. There were only two white students in our entire school, twin girls. I still remember their first names, Tula and Lisa. I befriended them. They were getting bullied just like I was. And I didn't think it was right that people were picking on them just because. And so, of course, then people picked on all three of us. (laughs) Now, Um, what was the situation that that those two girls remained at that school knowing that they were going to have such a rough time? I think the, the, the white families who could afford it got together and built the segregation academy. Those who could not, And I'm assuming, you know, I never got to meet Tula and Lisa's family. So I'm assuming that they could not afford it. Now, most of those who could not afford the private academy sent their kids to school in the next town. They moved away. Mm -hmm. And in the next town, which was a bit larger, there was a great majority of whites, very few blacks in that school. And so those who could afford to move, moved. 
and took their kids there. That left Tula and Lisa behind. We were in school together for a year, maybe two, and then they finally went away. And the town then had two schools, an elementary school and a high school, both all black, and they finally combined the two schools again. And what was the white school is now falling in ruins. The white school? Mm-hmm. Why is that? There were no whites left in town. People literally moved away. Shortly after the schools were forced to integrate, a black man who had been the assistant principal at the school ran for mayor and won, and won the election. And when he won the election, that was it. All remaining whites, the majority of them, left town. The place is a ghost town now because when the white families moved on, they were the business owners. Okay, so you were describing how when you had Black History Week, it was always the same speeches by the same folks. About the same folks. And then I go to Talladega College. I had the bounty of being taught. One of the president's wife, Gloria Wade Gales, taught a number of the English classes, and she taught literature from a historic perspective. So we didn't just learn about the literature itself. We learned about what was going on in the world that may have shaped that literature, that writing. And it just opened my eyes. There were, had been, black people out there doing things and accomplishing things, great things, you know, that I had never dreamed of before. It was what I needed at the time that I needed it. And what did you do after you graduated? There was a brief stint in law school, but I did that to make my dad happy, but I was not happy. (laughs) And so after my brief stint in law school, I... Well, while still in law school, I got a part-time job at a newspaper and realized that, yes, that really was my love and talked with my dad. He was okay with me giving up law school, so... So your parents were very supportive of pursuing books and education. Were they also ostracized in the community? Actually, my parents were not supportive of me pursuing books and an education. However, he wanted you to go to law school. Yeah, it's a little odd, Warren. (laughs) (laughs) Sort of inexplicable? (laughs) Yes, inexplicable. Neither of my parents, my dad never graduated high school. He was ill from early childhood and became ill his senior year and never finished high school. My mother did, however, both farmed and worked in factories they didn't know of anybody who'd gone to college before. I was the first in my family. And there were times, when I say I was beaten for reading, my mother did that, you know. And there were times when family and friends told me, they would say things like, you're just trying to be white. You ain't nothing. You ain't never going to be nothing. You didn't come from nothing. We don't know why, you, why you're doing this. And quit. And I'm not sure what drove me, except I knew what my life would be if I stayed in that town. And I didn't want that. And I guess I had gotten a glimpse of that there was a a broader world from the books that I'd always read, even when I was beaten for doing so. And I wanted to find out. 
So I did not get financial support or emotional support from my family or friends. I worked my way through school. I got scholarships and that sort of thing. Graduated with honors. I had to find out. How did you clandestinely read? I found an old dictionary once, and I sat down and started reading that. My dad got a paper out once, and it was early morning delivery, and I had to go with him when he delivered the newspaper to keep him from falling asleep at the, at the wheel. And I would pick up those newspapers, and I remember stroking the page, stroking the words, wondering how it all came together. You know, I never hid my reading. I would read anyway, and just when the beating came, it came. That was at home. At school, other kids would go out to play during recess. I would sit in the classroom and read. Just any chance I got. Hmm. Anything I could read, I read. So tell me about your experience at the newspaper. I got my first newspaper job, let's see, full-time newspaper job. Was it right after college? Right after college, yes. In 83, I went directly into the newspaper business full-time. I was a token hire. Mm-hmm. Even though it was the early 80s, I, I was still in the Deep South, and a lot of folks there, newspaper editors included, did not believe that black folks could understand the English language well enough to work for a newspaper, or at least do a good job. However, some newspapers were coming under fire for not hiring minorities. My first job, I was hired Within six months, a senior editor called me into his office and announced that my work had been so impressive that although they had initially underpaid me, I was getting a big raise and a promotion and keep up the good work. This was repeated, this behavior was repeated numerous times in my career. And each time I was told it was because they did not expect me to be able to do the job because I'm black. Mm-hmm. So what was your exemplary work? I was nominated for the Pulitzer for three different projects that I worked on. Each time, the newspapers get a bad rep. To a large degree, they deserve the bad reputation that they have. However, I didn't know how rare I was at that moment. I was a true believer in that I believe that the mission of newspapers first and foremost was not to throw sensational headlines out at the public and and get spend your quarter, your 50 cents or whatever. It was a service. That there were never just two sides of the story, there were all sides of the story. One of the projects that I'm most proud of, I was living in Georgia at the time, working for a paper there, we took a look at gang activity that had consumed a neighborhood, except we didn't just take, and I led the project. I led a team of about a dozen reporters on this project. I did some of the reporting myself. We didn't just look at, point a finger and say, ooh, look at the people in this neighborhood. They have gangs. There's lots of crime there. Oh, isn't this bad and terrible? We took the approach of interviewing We spent time in the neighborhood before we did a single story interviewing the people who lived in this town and found what we called everyday heroes. And these were people who were living, doing their best to live life to the fullest despite the hardships they faced every day. 
people, adults who took time out of their busy days to walk children to school, children who weren't their own children, their neighbor's kids, to school so that they wouldn't be harassed by gang members, people who took time to patrol the streets to discourage gang activity and that sort of thing, people who were struggling to find some good out of life. They were everyday heroes, and, and these people get overlooked and ignored too often. Mm-hmm. That was one of them. In South Carolina, I was near the border of North Carolina, it was an area of great prosperity, but in the middle of that area, there were people who were living, literally living in abandoned vehicles in the woods. The lucky ones had abandoned vehicles to sleep in. Just this pocket of people who didn't fall into anybody's city limits or county limits, or at least not that anybody was willing to claim. We call that one poverty in a land of plenty. And we told the story of these people and, and, and tried to find out what kind of help they needed, how we, we matched, literally went beyond just reporting it, to trying to match resources, available resources of what the needs were, helping folks out. Now, what was the situation that had you move from paper to paper? The glass ceiling is mm-hmm. very low if you are African-American and female in the Deep South. Again, these were people who hired me not believing I could do the job. When I showed that I could do the job, I might get one promotion, but that was it. I ended up moved because once I learned something, I'm the kind of person who can become kind of bored, and, uh, mm-hmm. and I need a challenge. So these opportunities just kept falling into my lap and said, hey, I'm going to go for it. So I would go to another newspaper. Each time it was a move up Mm -hmm. in salary and opportunity, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And how many newspapers did you work at? I worked for about five different newspaper companies, about a dozen different newspaper operations, I think. I had been in the, the newspaper business about... 20 years. First seven years as a reporter, the remaining years moving up in the editing ranks. I eventually accepted a position as managing editor of a small paper in in Milledgeville, Georgia. At this point in my life, I was, because of my upbringing, because of my experiences in the newspaper business, I was very hard, very jaded. I didn't have an ounce of compassion left in me, I don't, I don't believe. Right after I took that job of a high couple, my publisher walks into my office one day and tells me that this, this Baha'i couple, they're, they're coming by to, to meet you, and I'm really busy. Uh, oh, yeah? Uh, what's a Baha'i? Oh, she said, it's, it's some hippy-dippy religion, but, uh, but they do good things for race relations. And I'm sure, okay, fine. And they came by and met me, and the whole meeting was polite. But I was busy. I got them out of the office as quickly as I could, you know, and never talked to them again. I recently, though, just in recent months, looked them up. I uh, got in touch with one of my old newspaper friends who had their number, and I called them, and I told them that the coming of a high had changed my life completely. First time I heard it, I blew it off. 
some hippy-dippy religion not worth my time. But it has completely changed my life. So describe for me, Deb, the transformation from just setting it aside and not being interested to the point of actually becoming one. Describe that transition for me. Well, when I got the job as managing editor, I was already disabled. It was early. That was the early point of my illness. We did not know at, the, at that time what the actual cause was, but I had a nerve injury in my arms and was trying to handle that the way I handled most things in my life. I didn't have time for it. It was slowing me down. I was going to ignore it and keep doing my job, keep pushing forward with my career. I was married to the newspaper business. It was my whole life. Someone actually, a co-worker one day, actually wrote Get a Life on a piece of paper and handed it to me, and I still didn't get the hint, you know. I ended up, as, as I was known to do at that time, leaving that newspaper and going on to a different newspaper, but the disability finally caught up with me, and I had to leave the newspaper business. It took about three years to diagnose the, the injury. We started out thinking it was a carpal tunnel injury in my wrist. It was a nerve injury in my elbow. I had surgery for that. Three months later, I was in worse pain than I had been in even before the whole business started and was forced to quit. There I was. You know, I was 35 years old. I had spent my life as a newspaper lady, loved it, didn't have a life outside of the newspaper, had no clue what to do with myself. I ended up returning to my hometown and moving in with my dad and stepmom. I had sworn I would never, ever go back to that town to live and had rarely visited the town as an adult. Once I left and went to college, I rarely went back. But there I was. It just so happens that in the months before I returned home, uh, the high family had moved in. And they were, <laughs> I guess we were, maybe we were, no. I was drawn to them perhaps because they were outsiders, having grown up in that town as an outsider. They were drawn to me because I now know that's what the highs do. We met at some sort of public meeting. He is white. She is Mexican-American. They were outcasts in the town, like me, because... They had moved into a home that was too close to the black side of town, and they were friendly with black people. And they did not realize that that was just a no-no in that town. Black folk and white folk did not mix, did not socialize. They had black people in their homes for firesides, these things they call firesides. Deb, what year was this, and what town was this? This is back in Camp Hill, Alabama. And the year was around 1999, 2000. You're kidding me. It was still racially charged in 1999? Well, you used the word charged. It's not racially charged in the sense, when when I think of the word racially charged, I think of people nose-to-nose fighting it out over an issue, right? Mm. This was complete acceptance. Segregation is accepted there. The problem that this family was having was they stepped outside of their boundaries. That's when people became angry with them. 
Is, is, am I making sense? Yeah, so the boundary was that they were crossing the segregation line. Yes, they would, everything would have been fine for them. They would, life would have been easy if they had only socialized with other white people. But they socialized with black people. And that's when the problems developed for them. And what, what did the, how did those problems manifest itself? The husband got death threats by whites. Black people did not trust him because he was doing what just was not done. And rather than seeing it as this person is reaching out to me in genuine friendship, it's what does this person want? What is he trying to do? What is he after? The wife was Mexican-American, and she presented a, a whole different issue altogether because no one, white nor black, knew what to do with her. But these were wonderful people. They were filled with genuine love for the people around them, and they seemed to be oblivious to all the hatred that was being directed towards them. Now, I loved them, but I had absolutely no use for this high faith thing they kept trying to talk to me about. Mm-hmm. I would go to their home, and we would have tea, and we would talk, and it's like, these are really cool people, and then they, they would talk to me about the Baha'i faith, and I just had no use for religion whatsoever at that point in my life. Sure. Growing up in the, in the church that I'd grown up in, in that same town, I used to ask questions. And I was told that because I asked questions, then I was going to burn in hell. In that town, in that particular church, you were expected to listen to the preacher and the deacons and the church elders and do whatever they said, but not think for yourself or ask questions. You were a troublemaker if you did that. You really weren't even expected to read the Bible. You know, I could not handle the idea of a God that... I was told loved me, but was going to burn me in hell because I asked a question. Right. And at the age of, I was 12 years old when I started going through the motions of going to church, but not really being engaged in the process. And then as a journalist, trained skeptic, I just, religion was good for other folks, but not for me. Mm-hmm. When I met these Baha'is, their religion was good for them like the Baha'is, but it was not for me. I kept asking questions, though. Like because what What kind of questions? The things they told me about the Baha'i faith sounded good. It wasn't like any other religion that I had ever encountered before, and at various points in my life I had explored other faiths. The thing that impressed me the most early on, I think, was that in the Baha'i faith, you're encouraged, you're actually encouraged to ask questions. You know, one of the, 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 the leading principles is independent investigation of the truth. It wasn't a matter of, okay, we're Baha'is and we're going to tell you what to believe and you have to believe exactly as we believe or else. It was, Deb, you got questions, we've got all these books, you know, <laughs> Mm-hmm. Ask away. We'll help you find the answers. And I really liked that, you know? Mm-hmm. I think first I more or less had housekeeping questions. And by housekeeping questions, I mean 
some of the things that bothered me about the church that I, that I grew up in was money. My brother and I were laughing yes, just yesterday morning. He's on a spiritual search right now. Even though he doesn't particularly like to, he decided to go to the family church. I'd gotten him early enough in the morning that he was getting dressed for church. And to get dressed for church, get ready for church, he said, involved a trip to the, to the ATM because he knew he would have to have money for the building fund and for the education fund and, and for the umpteen zillion other special funds that they'd set up. There were like three or four collections in this church on any given Sunday. And you were not considered a good church member if you didn't give. The Word of God, I shouldn't have to pay to hear the Word of God. That just always bugged me. And I had questions about, because I had been convinced at 12 years old that I was going to hell, I had questions about the high view of hell. Mm-hmm. This fiery place where I'm going to burn forever and a day for not contributing enough and to each and every one of the funds at the church or for asking questions, the wrong questions, or for, for being female even. There was the equality of, of men and women in the Baha'i faith, two wings of a bird. And without those both wings being equal, that bird's not going to fly. That was just a phenomenal concept for this little girl who had been told that you basically have to walk behind the men and you would never... Even though God loved you, you'd never be as assured of as nice a place in heaven as the men. Now tell me, what was the Baha'i response to your question about hell? Hell is not as I understand it. And I, I can't remember what, the exact, what their exact response to me was at that time. As I understand it, hell is not a place of fire and brimstone. Hell is within us. Hell is remoteness from God. And now that I have accepted God, hell is the life that I was living before I became a Baha'i. So tell me more about your interchange with these Baha'is. I went to their home several times for firesides. They gave me books to read. A fireside is, what is a fireside? Come over to our house, have some tea, have some dessert, maybe even dinner. And any questions you have about the Baha'i faith, about us, ask those questions. And we'll answer your questions. It's informal exchange of ideas. It wasn't there lecturing me about what the Baha'i faith was all about. Uh, they opened the floor. And whatever I had questions about, if they didn't know the answers themselves, they provided me with reading material and told me where to find it, that sort of thing. So you went to these fireside meetings? I went to the fireside meetings. Each meeting, they would send me home with an armload of books, and I would get home. I was very ill at that time, all but completely bedridden. And even though they kept giving me these books, first couple of times I got home, I opened them up. I tried to read them. I could not. I was too heavily medicated. It was the primary reason. So I never got around to it. But... I was listening, and I was learning, and the transformation process had had already started. I started out being polite, just because we're Southern and that's what we do in the South, but I was learning and being transformed. 
We also, in addition to Baha'i activities, and this is something that I love about the Baha'is, we respect other faiths, other beliefs. Jim and Nina used to take me to the Unitarian Universalist Church with them for their Sunday services. One Sunday, we got there really, really early, and no one else was there. At that point, was also investigating Unitarian Universalists. And we're talking, and Jim brought up the Baha'i faith again. And for some reason, that day, maybe I wasn't feeling well, I don't know, I was not my usual polite self. He said something about the Baha'i faith, and I said, look, it's time you knew. And then I just lashed out at him and told him all the reasons why I had no use for the Baha'i faith or any other religion. Just... Uh, like that. Do you remember what that list contained? Some of the things were religion is an excuse that's used for war. In most religions, females do not have equal standing with males. The, the whole clergy scenario where you're supposed to listen to a talking head and absorb whatever is said to you like a sponge without thinking for yourself. It was a long list of, of things. Mm-hmm. And Jim looked at me, and he just started laughing. And his eyes lit up. I mean, they were really shiny. And he called his wife over. She had been looking at the artwork in the church. She called her over. And he said, Nina, Nina, Deb's a Baha'i, and she doesn't even know it. And Nina said, oh, really? And she started smiling, and her eyes lit up. And Jim said, Deb, tell Nina what you just said. And I'm a little confused at this point, and I repeated my little rant, but it didn't have as much steam as it (laughs) had the first time around because I was a little bit confused by their reaction. They just laughed at me, and then before we parted that day, he gave me another book. And in this one, it had the Baha'i Principles listed very succinctly. There's only one God. All religions, all true religions, worship that one same God what I consider the basic ones, independent investigation of the truth. There is one God and just one God. All true religions worship that same God. So we're not supposed to be at war with one another. We're supposed to be figuring out how to love one another. Those are the things that were important to me. So what happened? Well, being the jaded journalist that I am, that I was, I said, okay, fine. So I am a Baha'i but I'm never going to let him know. (laughs) (laughs) I was still suspicious. I was still skeptical, you know. Sure, sure. But then we went. I ended up moving to another community, um, met some more Baha'is, and started doing a study circle. Now, what's Um, that? It's where people get together in groups, small groups, and we study the Baha'i writings together. Jim and Nina were friends with the Baha'is in this new town. So there was a transition there, kind of a, we're handing Deborah off to you. She's a seeker or someone who's interested in the faith. And at that first study circle, where my health had improved a little bit, I'm comprehending things a little bit better, I'm understanding things better, the give and take that I saw between the, the friends there, learning that there was no dumb question, that there was no condemnation if you didn't understand something or did not agree with something. That kind of sealed it for me. And it's like, okay, I'm, I'm ready to start this journey. 
And I got home and I prayed about it and called them up and said, okay, I'm ready to declare. And how long ago was that? That was about seven years ago. And how do you see becoming a Baha'i changing your life? During this time, I was bedridden, Warren. I think around 2000, I was completely bedridden. And I was that way for about four years. And during that time, I met Baha'is, talked with Baha'is, interacted with Baha'is. They would call me, email me, come to see me. They were praying for me. Lots of people were praying for me. However, because of my limited understanding of what God was all about back then, I did not believe that it was okay for me to pray for my own healing. Prayer works is all I can say. What I did pray for, although I could not pray for healing, I prayed for understanding. And I came to understand through the Baha'i writings that, yes, God loved me. Yes, even though I was suffering, God wanted me to be joyful and happy. And yes, when I was suffering, God wanted me to turn to Him for help. And the Baha'i writings helped me understand that. The Baha'i healing prayer, Thy name is my healing, oh my God. And so finally, I guess I was gradually deepening as a Baha'i. I wanted to serve this faith of mine and tried to find ways to do it even while I was bedridden. Little things like, I'm going to make one person laugh a day. God created us to be joyful and happy beings, as one of the prayers tells us. So I'm going to find a way, despite being bedridden and all these limitations, to be joyful and happy and to make at least one other person joyful and happy every single day. And in the process of reaching out, telephone, email, to visitors, trying to make them laugh, I became more joyful and I became more happy and I became incredibly thankful. And the illness... I came to see as a bounty, as a blessing, because I'm a knucklehead, speaking frankly, and it took that to slow me down long enough to pay attention to this message, this wonderful message. And in the process of paying attention and learning and learning to love God and love myself and, and love everyone around me in the process of making other people laugh, I started laughing and I started getting better and it's like, okay if you let me out of this sick bed, I want to serve this faith I can do a little bit now you let me out of this sick bed, I can do a lot more let me out of this bed so I can serve and that's what happened How long ago was that? That you were able to get out of bed, basically. I got out of bed in 2004. At that time, I was taking 22 different prescription drugs every day. My stepmother used to joke that I took so many pills that I rattled when I moved. But I went in to see a doctor to be evaluated for one of those scooter things because I couldn't walk. 
And he looked at my records and said that the reason I couldn't walk is because I was on too much medication. And I told him, you don't understand. I've got this team of doctors, and this doctor said I needed to take this for that, and this one said I needed to take that for this, and et cetera, et cetera. But he reiterated his point a couple of times, and I finally listened, and I spent a year and a half going off the drugs. I had to go into physical therapy. As I was getting better, I started searching for opportunities to serve the faith. And I became friends with a woman, Suzanne Alexander. She and her husband, Craig Farnsworth, wrote Marriage Can Be Forever. It's a book for married couples, How to Improve Your Marriage, based on the high principles. And she was looking for editors, volunteer editors. And we talked, and I volunteered, and she was doing a workshop at Boshpa High School. I signed up for the workshop, had not traveled in years, did not know if I could, if I could make their flight out to California from Alabama, did not know if I would even be strong enough to sit through one session at Boshpa High School. Lots of uncertainty there, but I decided this is an opportunity to serve. I'm going to do it. So I flew out to California, forgot my walker, still using a walker a lot at that time, arrived at the school and there another transformation took place. I sat through all the classes. I got to walk around the Bosch campus up in the woods in San Jose. It's beautiful. It's phenomenal. And it, it was such a spiritual environment. And there I was. In, in my hometown in Alabama, I was fairly isolated because Jim and Nina eventually moved on. So I was only behind in town, isolated as usual. There at Bosch, I was surrounded by just some really phenomenal Baha'is and befriended by them. I just decided that when I returned to Alabama, I was going to, I had to complete physical therapy first as far as getting my walking together. Did that. The day I graduated from physical therapy, my car was already loaded up, and I started on a cross-country trip stopping to visit Baha'is I had met at the Baha'i school along the way and headed back to Bosch. I was going to spend some time volunteering there. I never made it to Bosch. Uh, (laughs) When I landed in Arizona, I was in a little town here and fell and shattered, completely shattered my ankle. My bones were apparently really fragile from all the time I had spent in bed and made my way with a broken right ankle, I drove more than 100 miles to Desert Rose Baha'i Institute and spent some time there with the friends, and, and they took me to a hospital there, but I needed more work than that hospital could handle. So I eventually made my way to Tucson, Arizona, and was in the hospital there for about a week, called up the Baha'i Information Center, said, hey, I'm a Baha'i traveling through in a hospital just wanted to say hello. The friends were phenomenal. You know, everywhere you go, here I am, a perfect stranger, and the highs came to my hospital room and said hello and said prayers with me and took care of all of my needs. They put me up in their homes as I recuperated and such. I eventually made my way on to California, was there about eight weeks, 
finally gradually made my way back to Alabama and had been so spiritually transformed that although I had intended to live with my family, that was no longer possible. They had tolerated what they call my funny new religion at first, but it just wasn't possible for me to stay there anymore. So, Deb, what are your plans for the future? I'm still a disabled person. I have been transformed to such a degree that I no longer have any interest in the newspaper business whatsoever. I am recently moved to Tucson. I got married in the last two years. Do you see any writing in the future? I am working on an autobiography right now, an exploration of the nature of evil, how we, defi- how we define it, how we recognize it, and how the spiritual transformation helped me cope with, with what I saw as the evil in my life. And I hope that my story will be a benefit to others. I had a lot of false starts and such, but I recently married my dear husband, Daryl, mm-hmm. who's a phenomenal musician and writer himself. And for the first time, I feel like I'm, I'm in a place where everything is right for me to make some really great process on this work, and it's going much better now than it's ever gone. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Deb Rogers, a Baha'i and an accomplished journalist. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. such a long time when she looked inside herself she wasn't sure what she'd find she had to open the door a little wider now she had to dig a little deeper inside her somehow she walked into the fire alone and scared stiff now she says his leaving was a strangely wrapped gift Little Jamie's body has never worked right He's never had the peace of sleeping straight through the night His parents get weary and his parents get worn 
Still they always bless the day that little Jamie was born He opens the door a little wider now Lifts them up a little higher somehow It may look to the world like a 24-hour shift But his folks know life with Jamie's just a strangely wrapped gift What is it that we're really made of? How else will we ever know? Till the hand puts us in the fire Do we burn or do we glow? On my doorstep looks sad and forlorn The wrapping paper's faded It's all tattered and torn For a moment I wonder What on earth it might be Till I see the tag and realize It's made out to me It's gonna open the door a little wider now Lift me up a little higher somehow I used to run like the blazes Now I get the drift Someone who loves me Send me a strangely wrapped gift Someone who loves me Someone who really, really loves me Someone who loves me Send me a strangely wrapped
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.